Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Ballot Box. So you're joining us, two of us in the UK, on um, the day after a um, massive set of local and devolved elections, which has just taken place. Um, results are, um, oh well, I don't think flooding is quite the right word. Um, they're starting to flow at a, a decent pace at this point, but still not enough that we will be in a position to be um, delivering um, some analysis of them at this point. I don't think what we what we do have to discuss is the uh, is the regional elections which took place in Madrid um, earlier this week. Um, so we're going to get into that. We also have a few um, interesting bits of news from um, from cases that we've already covered and a, a little bit to say about the the elections which took place in Tasmania as well. Um, so yeah, before we get into that, um, how's how's things with you guys? How about you in in Mexico, Andres? All's good. I'm looking forward to um, the UK election and my favorite part of the UK election, which is dogs at polling sites, uh, at polling station photographs. <laughs> I haven't looked at them yet. I think it's just the most wonderful tradition um, that the that one of the birthplaces of democracy could have given to the world. Um, and the BBC always has a photo essay of uh, dogs at polling station. So looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, um, someone on my Twitter feed um, showed, uh, found, they dug out a brilliant uh, photo of their great grandparents' dog at a polling station from like 1904, <laughs> um, which I, I thought absolutely spectacular energy. <laughs> That's wonderful. It goes back. It goes back so long. I, I didn't realize that. Great. There's a, obviously a deep tradition that <laughs> I fill up. <laughs> yeah, um, I had the, the, the privilege of living in the UK with my dog that I brought over. And I, I, I think people who haven't, who haven't had a dog in the UK don't realize just how dog friendly the country is. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and you can even get, you know, you can take your dog to a pub or, you know, all sorts of places that you couldn't in other countries. And so um, it, it makes sense that there would be dogs at polling stations. Absolutely. How, how is your how is your voting experience, Chris? It's the first time on this podcast we can ask that. Oh uh, uh, yeah, um, it it was good. Um, there were was no queue because what I voted at, the, at midday. So <laughs> I, obviously, proper people were at work and so on. Um, uh, but yeah, it was very pleasant. Um, it's supposed to be that the they're giving they're giving out pencils this year in the UK, but they just had the normal kind of arrangement of a permanent one for me. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, very very, very nice. It's first time I'd ever been to that polling station too, um, and it was kind of amusing because like the the um, the polling clerk was taking a fairly long time to explain the process to me and just have to at some point go don't worry i i study elections for a living <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry you can just you can not worry about the spiel this time i'll just go off and <laughs> do my thing <laughs> yeah I, I i went i went down um fairly early in the morning actually and it was about 8 30 but similarly there wasn't really a queue at the time um, although I gather from other reports around London that more queues kind of appeared in the in the evening yes. um, as well. Um, but yeah, similarly, mm. I got a I, I bought a pencil, but I, I still got a pencil to take away from the from the polling station as well. <laughs> which <is quite> excellent. <laughs> excellent. I'm glad to hear you got your government issued pencil. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm kind of interested in what will ha what happens with that uh, with because there was a lot of reports like late in the evening about like high turnout, mm. um, and like that's when you see high when I see high turnout in the evening, I'm usually kind of particularly interested because it usually means good turnout for Labour, but it may have just been a because of the social distancing measures that have been imposed mm -hmm. at polling stations this year, the the, the queues obviously look a lot longer than they normally do, mm. and it slows down the process of voting too. Yeah. So, yeah. and given the given the early results we've had in the north, that may well be the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. from, from what I've heard so far, I think the turnout has been about normal for England. Um, Mm. It's not racing to be negatively impacted at any rate. Scotland, it seems that there has been a, a reasonably significant boost in turnout, um, yes. which sort of makes sense given um, how uh, how kind of consequential these elections have been billed, I guess. Personally. Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 the interesting thing with Scotland is it seems to be that the turnout raise is, is, is pretty big everywhere. So it's not like mm -hmm. necessarily one side either. So. It'll be, it'll be, but it may well help legitimise any claims of a mandate after the mm -hmm. after the election. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. So we had a couple of little bits of um, kind of updates from um from from elections we've covered in the in the past few months. Um. I think one of them was um what's been going on in Israel. Um. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's been going on there, Chris? So the coalition negotiations in Israel have been ongoing. At the end of our last episode, I we had a little discussion about how the coalition negotiations would, would go. And I have to say, broadly, um, broadly, I think that discussion panned out pretty well in that. Um, one of the things I said it was would it would be particularly difficult for Benjamin Netanyahu um, to form another government because um, the parties that are in his block need to have both people from the Israeli far right and um, the small Arabic party Ram support him. And that's basically how things have panned out. Uh, the far right party um, religious Zionism has basically completely denounced and ruled out the idea of serving a government with Ram, and Ram is very clearly not comfortable with the idea of it either. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, uh, so it's been slightly amusing as someone who, quite frankly, is not a, exactly wanting Benjamin Netanyahu to form another government, to have watched... The, he, he's basically had the first go at trying to form a government and has failed now. And towards the end, we were getting into a phase where Netanyahu was running around to seemingly every party in the Knesset um, saying, would you like to do a rotation agreement where I go second, i.e. the other person would be prime minister for a year and then he would become prime minister, <laughs> which was like real desperation hours. Um, and at one point, even doing it to, to his own allies, which was a clear hint that he's worried that they might actually defect to the other side. Um, so, and meanwhile, the opposition parties still have a lot of problems in terms of the former government. I mean, it's a party that literally ranges 
from the left to part to a party that has traditionally in some respects been to the right of Netanyahu um, but um, they've done a pretty good job at holding together it seems like um, there's a some common ground on the idea that the most right-wing leader in the coalition um, Naftali Bennett it will become prime minister first as a kind of sop to the right um and um and they and although there are disagreements and problems they similarly need to be able to work with arabic parties which is a headache um with parties on the left which is also a headache but it seems to broadly be like something seems seems to be kind of panning out and it looks like they're going to be able to form some kind of government and when when lapid who who heads the biggest party um in that block um received a mandate to form a government um he made very clear that he's very happy for bennett to become prime minister and also and bennett then kind of made an explicit plea two parties in the Bibi block to join the government, which would obviously make things a little bit easier in terms of government formation because they wouldn't have to, because they could basically boot some of the more difficult members on the left out, um, which is not possibly my favourite option, but it at least makes the government more stable. Did we have something we wanted to say about El Salvador? Did I make that up? Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, we do. Okay. Yes. Uh, so El Salvador has. Um, so we we had a very interesting episode about El Salvador in March when they had their legislative elections, um, and Andreas, um, you you told us quite a lot about how El Salvador has been kind of democratically backsliding, and uh, a, a lot of kind of worrying details. And I, I, El Salvador has since entered the news because of. Um, new developments on that front, shall we say. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, there was the macabre coincidence that this week I had my students read some of the newer political science sort of a research on democratic backsliding. Um, and uh, on Saturday, the new Legislative Assembly of El Salvador took... Um, Took their seats. They, they, they. There was, a, you know, they, they inaugurated the new assembly, which has a huge majority for the sitting president, who's been, you know, which we, we, we discussed this in the episode, has authoritarian tendencies, um, and and Bukele, the president, his allies have sixty four out of eighty four seats in the assembly, and on their first day in the new assembly, they voted to to strip. Um, to the the five Supreme Court justices from their posts. Um, this is this is legal because you know with a supermajority according to the Salvadorian Constitution that can be done, but it was obviously motivated by um, the uh, the goal of concentrating power in the executive and of eliminating a check to Bukele's power. The, these these five Supreme Court justices in the past voted against the the more draconian COVID nineteen related measures that 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 allowed um, you know certain you know I think arguably abuses to um, abuses of power and so they had curtailed that those draconian measures and Bukele 
had had them in in his crosshairs for a while and used his um, legislative assembly uh, majority to do that. They also did. Uh, they also um, stripped the chief prosecutor of his post, and they've changed him for a pro-government uh, chief prosecutor. In the midst of obviously several high-level investigations, including one around the relationship of Bukele with certain um, organized criminal gangs, and also the use of the military to pressure the assembly to pass a budgetary, uh, a new budget. So in a sense, I think we, I, I, when we recorded the episode on March 6th, I was weary of um, kind of providing too many adjectives to, you know, describe uh, Bukele and, and, you know, the, and kind of the consequences of what the the midterm elections would mean for El Salvador, but now I know that we fell short of <laughs> of the true extent to which this this uh, president was going to use um, his his formal formally constituted uh, constituted powers. So bad news for El Salvador. Um, bad news for for the region probably as well because yeah, this is also a very popular move. Um, facing relatively little resistance from the general populace, although a lot of resistance from very brave members of the media and other sectors of civil society in, in that country who've raised the, you know, who've raised the cry. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think in some ways we're kind of lucky that, um, that we have a democratic president in the White House again too, because the, it, it, because the American government has been very quick to condemn Bukele who was something of a Trump ally. Um, so at least that might help them cause some reasons for um, for other countries in the region to perhaps not move in that direction. But <laughs> yes. Excellent point. Excellent point. There was a very swift and um, unequivocal pushback from, yeah. from uh, the United States and from other countries such as, I don't know, like Germany also. Um, yeah. Also Germany, the Organization of American States. But had Trump been in power, um, I suspect maybe there would have even been maybe some sort of encouragement even um, mm. from yeah from the, oh, the very, le- very least mixed signals you can very easily yeah. um, you can very easily imagine under under someone like trump in particular given the way that his government's often worked condemnation from the state office and 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 support from the white house right. um, exactly yeah which less than ideal uh-huh. <laughs> exactly so Grim news from from that that part of the world that we covered mm. before. Yes, absolutely. But well. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, we're not going to be following that up with very pleasant results from Madrid. I don't think. <laughs> also, not going to be. <laughs> it's, yeah, mm. I mean, I don't know. This is quite the same level of threat level to democracy, but um, these these aren't. Um, if you're somebody who is concerned about the rise of right-wing populism in general, um, it's not the most uh, not the most not the most promising um, electoral results. Um, but yeah, mm. this was this was Madrid, normally a region which um, I guess is kind of known for having fairly fairly dull regional elections. I it, it was governed for a little while by by the left in the in the 1980s, but since since then it has been 
consistently governed by by the People's Party, the the Pepe, the main Spanish um, central right party. Um, since since then, usually with an absolute majority. Um, and and this this election, however, is it's interesting because it's a it's an early election. Um, it's a snap election called, which is the first time that's also happened in in Madrid. And and yeah, I mean, it was it's seen as as being pretty uh pretty dramatic in the amount of uh vote shares that changed that changed hands um and uh, it saw the exit of of one party um from from the regional parliament as well um I mean, it's, and it's also taken out a party leader as well at the national level <laughs> it's also true yeah mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots of wide-ranging effects there. So how did this uh, early election come about? That's probably a good start. <laughs> so we did mention this, I think, on an episode back in... Um, yes, we did. March. Um, so, yes, it was on the 10th of March. Um, the um, in, in, in Murcia, which is, which is another region of Spain, um, on, the, on the Mediterranean coast, um, the... Uh, what what happened was basically so in the in in Mercia the same as in in Madrid there was a government which was formed by the Pepe and the the Liberal um, Citizens Party which people might remember from the the Catalonia episode um, which was supported by Vox the the far right um, far right uh, populist right whatever you want to kind of call it party in, in Spain um, and uh, in a kind of shock move the uh, citizens instead tried to in Murcia team up with the the socialists to bring down the bring down the regional government. Um, so this prompted uh, the, the the president of Madrid, um, who also obviously governed in a coalition with the the same arrangement, um, to um, to break this alliance and to to call snap elections um, to try and head off the threat, which really, as far as I can gather, wasn't actually there. The Madrid citizens. Had, not registered any intention that they were going to pull sim- such a similar move, but she um, had used used this as an excuse to dissolve Parliament and call uh, new elections, which happened um, which happened on Tuesday, on the fourth of May, and um, I, I think it's fair to say that this this gamble has paid off for for, for her. Mm. Um, and so yeah, so um, Isabel Diaz uh, Ayuso is her name, and she has she has won um, one has given the Pepe one of its a rare good result in the past few years um yeah yeah so um i think probably one of the important things here is from what i understand of the election is um diaz herself and her, her kind of her personal popularity um and and the kind of particular stances she takes so uh, um so uh, w- why is it that she has won this this big victory the main thing i've been gathering from the coverage of this election is this, that uh she has run a campaign which has been um quite focused on opposition to uh covid um restrictions basically in in spain um and has gathered a lot of support from Madrid's uh, hospitality sector, um, because she has fought to keep uh, bars and restaurants open during the pandemic, um, which um, obviously does not have good effects for public health. But um, the the owners of those of those uh, of those businesses have have been very supportive of this move. Well, and yeah, to the extent in which she is, um, she has used the slogan uh, uh, 
democracy or uh, freedom or communism was the, the slogan that was used um, repeatedly throughout the campaign. Um, so, yeah, it's sort yeah. of um, kind of a libertarian overtones, I think, to it. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that kind of slightly libertarian right wing objection to. Yeah. Yeah. And she's someone who's kind of broadly considered to be on the right of her party. Am I right in thinking? So, yeah. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just um, add to that. I think measures like um, COVID-19 restrictions have been quite strict in Spain, as they have been in most of Europe. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, there's kind of a continental divide. And so the new world, i.e., um, well, not not necessarily the New World because that would also include Australia. But in the Americas, I think you've you haven't seen such strict restrictions as you have in yeah. continental Europe, and it's the kind of division of I guess like trust in government and political cultures. And yeah, so, and I, to, to be fair, I think as well also the fact that the Americas, particularly North America, is much less dense than Europe. Yeah, therefore, that's also that's also true. Therefore, also meaning that there's less need for because because for example, my father can basically do everything in the world from his car. <laughs> therefore, does not need <laughs> therefore does not need to be locked inside his house so much. <laughs> we, should point, we should point out to people listening that that Chris's father lives in the United States. Yes, yeah. he's not just yeah. he's not just driving his car through um, like central London, <laughs> so just just yelling at people to come out of shops with bags. Mm. Of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I, um, she and, has throughout the the pandemic as well. Whenever because obviously Spain is so decentralized, a lot of the restrictions been built upon. Um, kind of cross-regional agreements on restrictions and mm. she has a reputation for both being difficult to pin down in those um in to, to those arrangements but also um on, on a couple of occasions agreeing to them and then immediately backtracking as soon as she's walked away from them as well yeah and i, I understand that the spanish government's coronavirus response has overall been controversial too in terms of for example care home they had they've had a number of scandals as care homes like a lot of european countries have but spain seems to have had had problems there more than most um i also i've also had a kind of wondering if perhaps in some ways it's easier for the right to introduce these kinds of measures than for the left because it's kind of going against the kind of stereotypical idea of how they might act um so it's easier I think for, if you're a left-wing opposition party and you're up, as we see in the UK, for example, and you're up against a right-wing government that's introducing restrictions, providing economic risk support, um, and so on, it's much harder for you to attack because in some ways they're doing the kinds of things that you would stereotypically be expected to do in this kind of situation. Um, whereas for a left-wing government, doing these kinds of measures it's more i think it's probably trickier um particularly in a polarized political environment like spain that's that's a a theory i have but um, (laughs) there's probably not enough left-wing governments left in europe for me to test it properly but that's that's my theory (laughs) and and as you say spain is um more than it has been for many decades a, a polarized political environment 
Uh, yeah. So these elections are very much reinforced that, that idea. Um, the fact that we're very much sort of uh, seeing this idea quite popularized of these kind of the two the two blocks that are now facing up one other, one of which has the kind of the parties of the right in it, one of which has the I suppose the parties of the left plus the plus the kind of uh, regionalist parties as well, kind of more 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 being kind of associated with that, which makes up the current government. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, and, and I think um, sounding a lot of the uh, a lot of the movement which happened in this this election we'll talk about it in a minute that the, there was there was definitely some movement from the left-wing parties to the right-wing parties in this but mm. uh, the huge majority um has come through in within block movement um because yeah. this is the, the one of the most noticeable features if you just look at the the results of this is that um so citizens um has has lost about 16 percentage points of its vote it's fallen below the um the five percent electoral threshold and lost all its seats um whereas the pay pay um has gained was 23 percent sorry 23 percentage points um which is uh, 35 seats and has ended up um with about 45 percent of the vote um after having a, a really poor uh, result in 2019 should however notice that historically in madrid that would not be one of the top results for the pay pay um mm. but together with with vox which has basically maintained steady its last its results so it's got around nine percent of the vote um there is an absolute majority for these for these two parties of um mm. now fairly reasonably far to the right as well yeah so do we have a sense so um yeah let's talk a little bit about vox because <laughs> um, this is a relatively newcomer to spanish politics right um uh, and and you know, for a long time, there was a lot of talk that Spain was somehow resistant to the siren calls of right-wing populism, um, which was obviously not panned out <laughs> that way. Um, uh, and, and as you said, they kind of maintained stability, but um, to what extent would they be likely to be um, part of governing arrangements in Madrid, shall we say, and like, and and what kind of, uh, and what has kind of brought them to this position? That's two separate questions, really. But <laughs> let's talk a little bit about them. Okay, sure. Um, not, I'm not an expert in Spanish politics, although I did write a very brief um, article with someone who is about the emergence of Vox, I was basically suggesting that um, we needed more ethnography actually um, in the kind of, uh, in the way that, um, in the way that US academia has done that for a lot of like um, uh, shifts in public, uh, in political, um, political positions. So I'm thinking of Kramer's rural resentment. And so I was suggesting that that was needed for the emergence of Vox precisely because the what was coming out like the analysis around the emergence of Vox in Spain is very much grafted from anal the analysis of the emergence of right wing populism in general in Europe, and I think that there are definitely some of those um, same themes that 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 have um, have kind of helped create Vox. So it's an anti immigrant party. It has a kind of uh, discourse around like the loss of of traditional identity versus progressives. Um, this party has been around since 2013, 
but I believe it was around, um, it, was in, it was in the Andalusia elections where they actually kind of emerged onto the scene as a real political force. I don't exactly remember the results of that, that election, but they got, you know, a surprising percentage of votes around what was maybe like 15 or 20%. And they would eventually form part of the government in, in I don't remember if it's Andalusia or a city in the south of Spain. I'm a bit hazy on the on the details. Um, but there are also some really, um, oh, it, it was starting in 2018 when, when Vox has really risen. Um, that's it. But there are also some like very specific, I think, contextual reasons for how for the rise of Vox and also for the particular shape that the extreme right takes in informal politics in Spain. So one of them is something that we I think had hadn't really been seen explicitly, which is kind of like a they've taken like a pride in in Spanish, the Spanish Empire and Spanish kind of Iberian culture mm. and have embraced um like Latin American Latin Americans as part of Hispanicity. But this is obviously contextual because um their their position is actually against Moroccan immigrants, right? So they can kind of say that they espouse like more Latin American immigrants just because they're much fewer in number than than Moroccan and northern northern um African immigrants into Spain. So they're they're very they're very anti-Islamic. Um, and they and they use they'll even they'll even be pro Latin American immigrants if that if that bolsters their anti-Islamic position. Um, yeah. So that's a very particular. I, I think kind of, I think for British listeners that will sound yeah. somewhat familiar in terms of yeah. part of the kind of um, Eurosceptic agenda. Like there's certainly people who would. Uh, they're a minority, but there have certainly been people who've basically been advocating for like Commonwealth immigration over European immigration. I don't think that's really a major part of the vote, but it's uh, it's certainly it's certainly something that you find in kind of elite level discourses, right? Yeah. Um, and and uh, something that's also something a contextual element to this that's really important to remember is obviously that Spain transitioned to democracy in the late 1970s after the death of a right-wing dictator who governed mm. through coercion, a mix of uh, uh, the kind of unholy alliance of uh, brutal use of force um, and a legitimating discourse that came from, from, from extreme Catholicism, right? So a form of, um, yeah, from kind of religious discourse and that pervaded society that that Franco used to govern. So a right wing, an extreme right populist party seemed unviable in Spain and, and Spain had bucked the trend. So there, you know, Vox existed since 2013, but it had not had electoral success because there was a huge taboo around um, like, you know, the extreme, the, the far right in, in Spain, or there at least seemed to be a taboo until 2018 when Vox erupted into the electoral scene and gained first 12 seats in the Andalusian parliament, and then in a subsequent election, doubled the number of seats it's got, it got. And then in the general elections of Spain in 2019, it got a massive amount of votes for, you know, for a right-wing party. I don't exactly remember what the percentage of the votes that Vox got in 2019 was, but it was, 
it was above 10%, which was already, you know, it was pretty shocking. Um, so in Madrid, in Madrid, the, the, the Vox campaign in Madrid was very um, abrasive and, you know, fought, you know, digging its heels into pretty kind of awful um, message, messaging that was apparently kind of successful with, with, you know, its niche of voters. So what something that was really kind of controversial, but also indicative of the campaign in Madrid was that they put up a sign in Atocha station, which is a big train station and, and subway train and subway station in, in Madrid that said an, an unaccompanied minor immigrant cost the state I think it's 6,000 euros a month or 1,000 euros a month. Your grandmother gets 500 euros a month. Um, and that poster became kind of, there was, it, it galvanized positions around, you know, in, in, in the campaign. And it was even mentioned in the debate that they would fall so low as to compare the kind of humanitarian disaster that it is having un unaccompanied minor immigrants enter Spain versus, you know, um, welfare, kind of pitting these two things against each other. The, another, another kind of indicative, kind of uh, indicative of their campaign. Another event that was indicative of their campaign is that Pablo Iglesias, who was the leader of the of Unida, Unidas Podemos, um, a far left party, in the in the debate, asked Vox to condemn threats and violence against him and other candidates, and. The and the candidates of of Vox simply refused to condemn um, the threats of violence against left wing candidates and said it was a non issue. And Pablo Iglesias stepped uh, away from the table from the debating table and refused to debate. Um, the the Vox candidate who's who's um, also campaigned around, for example, um, against the tyranny of pro progressive politics, and she wanted. Uh, parents to be able, schools to have to announce whether they were going to provide um, sexual education to their children at, on that day so that parents could choose to not send them to school on that day. And, and also for uh, schools to have to moderate their kind of LGBTQ, um, education around LGBTQ issues. So not very, not very pleasant people, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that that kind of stuff is also it's also kind of out so out of the right populist playbook, in that, in some ways, a kind of successful right populist electoral strategies are often based on the idea of generating controversy just to make people have the argument, because it puts you in a position where you are essentially against everyone else, and it kind of it it, it deepens the idea of actually of. Uh, uh, it deepens the idea that you, you're creating a kind of separation between yourself and the establishment. Um, yeah, uh, 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 so some of that stuff I think will probably sound familiar to lots of people. Like doing things like having arguments about the amount of money being spent on things. It, it, like, it almost doesn't matter if if it's real or not because you, once you start people having the argument, you, 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 you've already kind of created a sense that those people aren't with you. Um, so yeah, it's depressing, but unfortunately successful. Uh, it, is, it, it is depressing, and and we've we've spoken on the podcast before about the kind of the strategic choices that 
more mainstream parties have vis-a-vis the the far right or far left. But I think it's more a problem with the far right in, in Europe. Um, and so there's, um, you know, whether or not to cut them out completely or to try and kind of adopt their discourse, right? Um, and I think in the case of Madrid, at least, uh, uh, the SIUSO very much kind of adopted the discourse of the far right. So the far right has had, is not only, has been successful in the Madrid elections, not only because it's maintained um, its number of seats, which is already kind of uh, shocking, but also because it's managed to influence public discourse. So just a reminder, Diaz Ayuso, one of her party slogans was communism or freedom, basically. Um, so, you know, this is, it's, it's obviously her adopting those those tactics. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think this is bad. It's bad um, for the the overall kind of uh, direction of the na- the national Pepe would could take in the future because this gives uh, the the party for the last couple of years has swerved between um, strategies of trying to like chase Fox to the right or to try and uh, moderate itself and and chase citizens voters. Um, obviously, this this gives kind of fuel to the argument that. They can run on a on a on a pretty right wing platform and, and do pretty well um, as mm. well um, because they have that they, they ran a as you say a kind of um, a campaign which was probably nearer to Vox and they still managed to wipe the citizens out of the out of Parliament entirely um, yeah so yeah and this is to say the, the the last few years the paper yeah. has not done very very well generally at many levels and this is yeah quite a good result for them. Yeah, and and given that given that citizens seem to be down everywhere, they've had a kind of series of very bad election results, and 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 the party is party has essentially had a, as I understand it, a kind of strategic problem between for a very long time it was kind of positioning itself as a centrist party that was kind of trying to do deals with both parties, and then it moved into the right block, and now it's trying to move into the centrist. Now it's been trying to move into the centrist block again. And that kind of dissonance clearly gives a sense that not only that citizens doesn't know what it stands for, it doesn't have a kind of set of kind of core core principles, or um, you know, it's kind of like the problem that other it's a problem that in particularly polarized political environments, if you if you move between blocks or it. it, it kind of gives a sense of actually we can't trust you and and uh, and and you know because people fear that the other guys are going to get in um yeah and it's so this is the the kind of problem that that a party like citizens have in in spain is that um so so with both of those strategies so first of all if it decides it's going to be a part of the the a kind of right-wing block then really you come against the argument of um given the electoral system what's the point of having three parties on the right maybe we can just vote for the pay pay again and why do we need this party yes and also it's historically has been basically impossible to sustain a centrist political party in in spain since the the the, the, um restoration of democracy i mean it just has never really worked um right Mm. from the kind of the start the first obviously the very first elections was won by um of kind of vaguely uh, centrist party, but that very quickly kind of faded away. And other attempts um, over the years, there have been many mm. to launch 
similar like centrist parties um they've all kind of uh they've, they've never really uh they've all failed to make a uh make a kind of uh, make an impression on themselves um see spain spain has a lot of political parties but it only really has historically had two at the national level one sort of smaller in terms of the on the far left but basically it's just been the two at the national level and everyone else has every other parties has been at the yeah. regional level because it's saying i mean uh chris you were saying before we came on air about the, the disproportionalities in the in the Spanish yes. electoral system yeah it's a it's a list pr system but the seat sizes are are often very small um particularly outside the cities and and that makes it very disproportionate. And and one thing, and it's, it, it, we, we often talk about electoral systems as choices between majoritarian and PR systems, in which, um, in which, how, in which, PR systems have multi-party outcomes, and majoritarian systems have tend towards two-party systems. But broadly speaking, it's more the case that. Uh, it's more like a, it, it, but having a PR system also constrains the party system because it, it, the smaller the seat sizes, the kind of the smaller number of effective parties you can have. Um, so yeah, because of obviously, obviously, uh, like some Spanish regions, some Spanish constituencies have as few as three seats, and if you only have three seats, it's only possible for three parties to get representation. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that obviously imposes problems. <laughs> yeah, which is which is um, much easier for a regionally based centrist party. Yes, because they have. Yes, mu- uh, mu- mu- yeah. and so, so, similarly, same as under first past the post, you know, party like the SNP. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. So so typically, most of historically, most of Spain's centrist parties have been. Either based based in regions have been kind of reg- centrist nationalist parties, and yeah, it's been incredibly really hard generally to to launch um yeah to launch mm. a nationwide centrist party in, in this way. Uh. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so now that we've talked a little bit about the right, um, let's talk a little bit about the left. So there's kind of three left wing parties, one representation in the. In Madrid, am I right in thinking? So the socialists, mm-hmm. um, Podemos, which we've spoken a little bit, little bit about, and then a kind of slightly Madrid-based party called Mass. Um, let's talk about them a little bit. Yeah, well, obviously we've got the the PSOE, the the socialists, which are the the main Spanish centre-left party. Um, Governing at the national level right now. Yes, governing at the national with with um, you know that's with Amos, um, which is mm-hmm. just the to their left and it's kind of a, a union of the old um, united left, which contains the dominated by the Spanish Communist Party and um, Podemos, which I'm sure most people, most listeners will be have a kind of at least passing familiarity with um, as Pablo mm. Iglesias is a kind of insurgent uh, left party, which came uh, to prominence after the after the financial crisis. Um, but yeah, and so this this and then the the, the third component is this uh, Mas Madrid, um, which is one of those names that doesn't make any sense when you translate it to English. So we will continue to refer to it as Mas Madrid. I think um, it is. Um, it was was founded um, by um, by the the so the by the the mayor of Madrid. So this is different from the president of the Madrid 
community. Um, the Madrid region contains uh, the, a, a municipality of the city of Madrid, plus various other um, suburbs and other small towns surrounding it. Um, the, the, the city's uh, mayor um, from, uh, from 2015 was formed by one of these, one of these kind of like left-wing platforms, um, Mas Madrid, um, which, and uh, the, the, the mayor, um, Manuela Carmena, founded um, this Mas Madrid platform to run for the regional elections in 2019 um, uh, in, in cooperation with, um, with um, Arejon, who was the number two in Podemos, basically. Um, and they, they split from Podemos um, to run as a sort of separate Madrid-specific um, left-wing party. It's generally seen as being a bit more uh, a bit more of a kind of a something of a green party as well, um, not not kind of strictly in that family, but a bit more so than 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 Podemos is. Um, yeah, they, they they briefly launched in the no, November twenty nineteen general election in Spain as a they they launched this party um, as uh, as as a kind of a, a national party in alliance with a couple of other left wing groups um, in an attempt to provide a sort of bridge between. Uh, Unidas Podemos and the Socialists. Um, they didn't really go very far. They didn't really gain many seats in the end. But Mas Madrid still exists and um, has contested, uh, yeah, contested this election uh, as well and 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 done pretty well actually. Um, this is one of the few parties of the left that can say it's had a had a fairly good night actually. Um, Mas Madrid got the same number of seats than the the more traditional PSOE. Mm-hmm. Mm. At 24, 24 and 24. Mm. Um, Johnny, do you know if this was kind of expected? If if Mas Madrid was expected to be kind of, uh, it's a bad, it's a bad night mm. for Pessoa, but a good night for Mas Madrid. Was this kind of expected, do you think? Or was it an unexpected uh, result? Not initially, I don't think. There was a kind of, a, in the last week or so of the campaign, there seemed to be quite a big a shift towards Mas Madrid. It seemed to Seems mm. to pick it starts picking up quite a lot of votes, um, and there's sort of late surge towards them. Yeah. Um. Whereas, yeah. Whereas, I think in the earlier in the when the election was called, perhaps we were thinking that they would lose a few seats, but they've actually they've actually made a few some gains. Yeah. And and is that something to do with? So, I, it'll probably be interesting to. It'll probably seem unusual to most listeners that a kind of big city like Madrid is is right leaning. Um, and, and Madrid has historically been one of the more right-leaning cities in, uh, in Europe. Um, but I kind of instantly wonder if perhaps the I understand that the Madrid community actually extends a little bit outside of what we would typically think of as like metropolitan Madrid. Um, and I wonder if perhaps like Massa kind of relying on something changing in the center of the city and like uh, and are we kind of getting something on the periphery or do you have any kind of sense of that or am i just theorizing about a basis i I did look into this because this would be your first assumption is you would think oh yeah the region is bigger than the city so the city must be left-wing and there's rural votes swamping it but it's not it's not the case i mean the, Mm. the municipality of madrid has been dominated it's the basically it, it always has exact almost exactly the same results as the community at large and the Pepe has dominated it for just the, the same yeah. amount of time really as well um so yeah it's not really the case at all and in fact the the places where the left did best in this election 
actually in in some uh, a few kind of more outlying um outlying oh that's really interesting well. yeah um so no it's not not the case at all so people i i have failed to find anything in english any kind of academic articles would explain to me the kind of uh how why madrid has ended up this so right wing yeah uh, i my yeah my my understanding uh, i've heard in the past for that it's in part a kind of it is in part a nationalist thing in terms of madrid seeing itself as a kind of traditional center of kind of castile and therefore mm-hmm. spanish nationalism but like it's interesting that that isn't shifting therefore from the sounds of things so at least mm-hmm. it's not shifting very much mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the election. Sorry, the the map of the results of this election is of the community of Madrid is basically blue, um, Berle all over as the winner mm. in each of the um, neighborhoods and like uh, municipalities that conform the community of Madrid, with the exception of two of El Atasar and Fuente Duña. They're very small. Um, they're very small counties. All of the rest is is blue, and the middle, which is the the county of Madrid, has a fifty. Got a, There was a fifty seven percent of the vote for the right wing block. Wow. Um, yeah, with forty five percent going to Pepe, and eight percent going to Vox, like mm-hmm. this the the main kind of center of Madrid. Yeah. It is it is really interesting. It's very it's quite shocking. I think maybe part of it also has to do with Madrid's opposition to not opposition, but uh, the question of nationalities within Spain and autonomous regions. Yeah, yeah, and, that's kind of what I was trying yeah. to get to. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm, and, yeah. And also, I think Madrid's relative wealth compared to the rest of Spain is maybe a part of it as well. I mean, yeah, uh, there's not so much. We're not thinking about um, with much of Spain. You're not typically thinking about kind of. Uh, rich countryside and these sort of deprived urban areas no if anything it's the, the, the opposite way around in most for most of these cases yeah we're talking about the south of spain um but if you think about the, traditionally where the socialists have got most of the support i mean it's really like andalusia and, and places like this yeah, it's where quite rural. Kind of raked the raked votes in um yeah madrid very wealthy and it's traditionally um yeah the, but the right we we often think of the yeah and and in some ways, that kind of center periphery thing is a kind of very Anglo thing in a lot of ways. I mean, it does exist in a lot of other countries now too. And but like, there's plenty of countries in in Europe where there there are right right wingers in the center. I mean, Paris is is historically a good example. It's starting to shift that way now, but Paris has historically been been pretty good for the right because France because Paris traditionally has has its rich people in the center and its poor people on the outskirts um rather than the other way around Mm. that is interesting because that is the opposite of uh catalonia as a region in the the countryside has always been fairly prosperous but barcelona Mm. has contained the uh the less prosperous parts yeah we do see a more typical thing with the socialist winning yeah it's also true uh, it's also true to some extent in nordic states as well so nordic states the major cities are very often bastions of the right the only one that is an exception is copenhagen um so like stockholm oslo um helsinki are all uh quite right-leaning um because essentially because industry was built up in small towns 
in Scandin in in most Nordic states. So, um, so the capitals were never like where things were built. So that was all like um, it was all like small towns and like further north. Uh, so, like there wasn't a kind of big proletariat in those cities. It was more like it's where the managerial and administrative classes were living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I, it it may also be something to do with the kind of economic geography of Spain, which is, mm. I imagine, something that probably none of us have read deeply into. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, I mean, the, it is regularly. I mean, this is the, the of the three. These are the three regions in Spain, basically, which function as the kind of uh, which are the most the most developed, have the highest standard of living, and function as the 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 kind of main uh, kind of economic powerhouse. Which is Catalonia, the Basque Country, and then and then the Madrid region as well, which yeah. oftentimes will be, um, depending on the year, will be ranked above those two as well. Um, so it is kind of the of the three richest regions. It is the only one that has this just unambiguously Spanish identity, I guess, as well, and is the and a Castilian identity as well. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, yeah, we've talked a lot about um, Catalan nationalism and and Basque nationalism, but it's telling on those two that historically those nationalisms have tended to be a little bit centre-right leaning, if anything. Um, that's changing a little bit now, but by broad, historically that was broadly true. Yeah, mm. yeah definitely. Um, mm. okay. um, I think the only the thing that we should mention is the fate of uh, Pablo Iglesias, actually. Yes. Um, yeah, because yeah. this, yeah, and maybe a little bit, of, uh, a little bit about kind of what this all means for the Spanish party system in the long run. Mm. But yeah, yeah. So Pablo Iglesias, the the leader and in many ways the kind of founder of Vox, uh, not Vox, fa- <laughs> of of oh, Podemos. <laughs> that is, uh, Pablo, if you're listening, um, my apologies. <laughs> Um, so uh, Pablo Iglesias, the, in, in many ways, the kind of long-time leader of Podemos, basically since the start, from what I understand, mm-hmm. um, has has resigned um, as as the national leader of the party. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah. What does what does that mean, and how did that come about? <laughs> Just, just a quick aside about Pablo Iglesias. He is, um, he's in a sense. I mean, he's taken. He's, he's a, he's, he's a dramatic figure in, in the best sense of the yeah. word, um, in the most literary sense of the word. He is um, someone who's attempted the philosopher king route into politics. Um, yeah. A professor of political science, known for standing on his desk and kind of. Um, exalting that his students kind of, uh, you know, take to the streets in activism, born of a critique of the two-party system um, and this kind of um, democratic effervescence that came, that washed over um, several parts of Spain after the, the, after the, the economic crisis. He formed a party that became quite successful, um, especially, you know, in, in kind of the historical context of spain where where two where two parties had really been yeah. had really dominated yeah, the system uh, yeah yeah I mean, this is a country where typically up until about the mid up until the financial 
financial crisis, the two main parties in Spain regularly got more than 80% of the vote between them. So it, it, um, Podemos, uh, so it's, it's been a huge change because now they're sometimes struggling to get as much as 50% of the vote between them. So um, the, the changes that Podemos brought about were, were really sizable. Yeah, I mean, and now they're now they're part of the the government, but mm. um, there was even a question as to whether or not they would they would form a government with the PSOE, precisely mm. because they were born of a critique of the kind of system, right? Beyond just kind of mm. criticizing or, or 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 kind of providing an alternative um, more to the left, mm. they were actually about a, like a kind of systemic criticism. Um, just one yeah. last thing. Um, this is. I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but as political scientists, I, I'm sure that you've also been asked whether or not studying political science makes you good at politics. And, and the truth is it doesn't. <laughs> well, at no, least no. I don't think it does. And, and, and there are very few political scientists who go on to be kind of successful politicians. So Paul Iglesias no. is one of them. Um, and it's, mm. his, his career in that sense is kind of, it's remarkable for, for, for nerds like us, for political <laughs> science nerds like us, because, yeah. um, you know, the things you learn in political science are, they don't have kind of immediate applicable value to um, becoming yeah. a good, either a good public administrator or a good kind of campaigner. Um, but he, you know, yeah. so. It's, well, I mean, it's well, like, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, Weber, who for, those who aren't social scientists as one of the great sociologists of the first part of the 20th century um, basically argued that academics made crap um, crap politicians <laughs> because they're bad at making that they're, they're bad at making decisions quickly and on their gut it's like, it's like it, it, people who make good uh, politicians are like lawyers and journalists because mm -hmm. those are people who are who make decisions on their gut all the time <laughs> and, doc and doctors Yes, doctors, doctors mm -hmm. who, who are who are used to seeing a lot of people and making very yeah. important decisions it's, quickly. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very different style of thinking mm -hmm. between being a political scientist. We we tend to you know you talk to a political scientist about politics, and as as happens with us here, we you immediately go into where you see to understand this, you have to go back to 1985. You won't <laughs> and, get that. And spiraling into kind of uncontrollable pessimism about <laughs> yeah, yeah. the possibility of real change through <laughs> politics. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> Pablo Iglesias was different in that sense. I mean, he used, I think he uses a lot of political science kind of language and in a sense, um, some sort of knowledge, yeah. but he was, he was a fierce, in the opposition, he was so fierce. He, yeah. Yeah. Inc incredible um, critic yeah. of a government probably not as successful um but so yeah, yeah so him announcing yeah. his retirement from politics is kind of a it's it's kind of a big deal for for nerds i guess <laughs> for yeah. spain as well yeah spain and it's well. a big big because in many ways he in many ways he has been a podemos's whole thing has essentially been like a populist party of the left and like populism is always very reliant on having a fiery leader who can kind of who who can connect with people and like to what extent can 
if, if and given that Podemos is now in government now, which is always a problem for populist parties because it makes them part of the establishment. It's um, like moving forwards for them is going to be very difficult. Um, like, uh, they're either going to have to change a lot, or they or or um, or they're going to um, probably struggle. Hmm. Well, I, I think suspect. It's, 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 at the moment, it just seems like they're they're shrinking back to the size of the old the the old um i i i u the united left that, that preceded them yeah um, i mean there's always so, yeah there's mm. there's always been a kind of far left vote in spain mm. but yeah um yeah. Just, yeah, to what extent that it can maintain it mm. it's going to be a like tricky the, one the the mm. attempt to um overtake the socialists which they very nearly, very nearly succeeded in 2015 and 2016. Um, it has not has not succeeded in the long run. Um, yeah, basically, um, and this was kind of why they ended up being in this this coalition with the socialists um, after November 2019 was because it, they they basically just kept losing um, votes um, and not getting anywhere near mm. this this target. And this was you know, this was the way that they were ever going to. Um, influence any policy yeah. um yeah so there's in, in the end they did get into the national government um this is the first coalition in spanish national politics since the 1930s um and uh iglesias became the deputy president um and then this election is obviously it's, it's important to iglesias partly because he is he's from madrid originally um and it, it seemed like that there was a possibility that uh the unidas Podemos would fall below the five percent threshold um as well which would be uh, very uh harmful obviously to the left's prospects of um of forming a government um if they didn't get all of their mm. parties over the threshold so he quit his role as uh, in the national government um said that he would lead the, the list in this election in, in madrid and um well, I mean, it's worked to the extent that uh, the party didn't fall below the threshold, um, and it did manage to gain um, one point six percent of the vote uh, on last time. Um, ended up with around seven percent. But this isn't considering that he is the the national leader of the party and has such an enormous profile mm. to have only gained this percentage of the vote in his home city. Um, and to have definitely been by quite a long way outvoted by by Mas Madrid um, was seen as quite humiliating, I think. And yeah, after the election, he has yeah. held this press conference where he's announced that he is uh, basically retiring from politics entirely. That's him. Um, yeah. Returning to any of his posts. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And it, it's very interesting for the Spanish party system because after 2008, it looked like for a while it was kind of moving into kind of becoming a much more multi party political system with, with possibly even four parties able to, at like various points, there were four parties that were talked about as having like the potential to like provide a prime minister. And now we're, um, and then it sort of seemed to become like a two block thing for a while. And now we're, now it yeah. seems like it's cohering back to its old ways. Well, yeah, mm. because um, this is part of the electoral mm. system. Right? It mm. seems to be only so long that you could sustain those two blocks without them doing yeah. each other harm by being splintered, really. I mean, at this point, right? The, yeah. 
it just it, it's gonna make logical sense for there to be one party one large party on either side really as i and um yeah seems like yeah and just, you can it's definitely on the way out so maybe yeah you can you can tell how often this this podcast uh, you can tell that i'm on this podcast in some ways by how often the message of the episodes ends up being electoral systems matter (laughs) 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 but yeah the electoral system matters (laughs) that's where we are (laughs) oh yeah that was depressing and fun (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah i mean not great for madrid and um i don't think it's, we don't know yet whether there will be box ministers they've definitely they haven't uh they, they've just said as far as that they will they will just uh they, they will just vote for for diaz as president um regardless of whether they're included in the government or not but yeah there's the, mm. she, she tellingly hasn't ruled it out either having at least some kind of involvement by the party um so yeah i mean that yeah that's kind of where like polar yeah that's where polarizing blocks can also get you into trouble a little bit as well Mm -hmm. if you're like a a third party because you reach a point where you basically can't refuse Mm -hmm. participation or support so it makes so funny in funny ways it might actually make it easier to exclude fox um, because they can't really not support the Pepe because of, of of this polarization. It's it's also an issue of numbers. Like um, the mm. Ayuso only needs four. I think four more, mm. four more seats. I mean, the Pepe only needs four more seats to have a majority in the in in Congress. So it's also the case where uh, Vox doesn't have that much. I mean. Vox could does have like a veto power, but it doesn't have much more beyond that. Like, um, yeah, and they've already they've already they've already said that they'll vote for the Pepe. So because the yeah. parties there they despise with every bone in their body as well. So there's not really that much yeah. chance of them doing uh, anything else other than yeah, and which means it'll be hard for them to, for example, pick off kind of members of the of the legislature for to vote on their agenda as a minority government but um but it it, it's it does mean it 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 means that there's not much else they can do really that fox can uh and and it it would probably risk fox's independence because if you have ministers that basically adds the number of people who are kind of tied into always going with what the Pepe wants to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is, it is, I mean, this, it's also obviously like a normal route for a kind of um, outsider party to start gaining power, right? To, to start at the local level. And I think of the mayor of Rome, who is from the five star movements. Um, that did eventually lead to much more, le- like bigger electoral uh, success in the league. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, in a way, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, did we want to uh, briefly mention Tasmania before we finish this? Yeah, this I mean, yes. I mean, Tasmania had a um, had a uh, had a, le- a legislative election last week. It's um, 
the smallest Australian state. It's also possibly one of the most more interesting constitutionally because it's the only it's the only legislature in Australia which elects its lower house by PR, so the one that chooses the government, and it's um, and the upper house is kind of interesting too because that's majoritarian, but typically most of the people elected are non-partisan so it kind of has an interesting constitutional structure but it's ended up being not not an especially interesting election in tasmania to be honest um so the liberals had a majority beforehand um the, uh, this is their third term in office albeit Tasmania, which is pretty good going for the Liberals in Tasmania because historically it's been slightly left-leaning. Obviously, the PR system helps there a little bit. Um, and, and the Greens are very strong there because of, you know, ecological pol politics with um, forest and unique wildlife and so on are obviously quite big in Tasmania. Um, but um, that they won, they've won another majority, albeit we don't have full counts yet. But one, they've got twelve seats have confirmed. They need thirteen for a majority, and there's one that can. We're, ba we're basically we're trying to decide between two liberals, um, and and there's another seat that might go to an independent who is kind of leaning towards them, but is also. Um, and basically, it seems that the premier of it, so it's kind of an interesting kind of COVID election. So lots of, so as we discussed when we discussed Western Australia, um, a lot of Australian elections have been very good for incumbents recently because of COVID. This is kind of another example. The Liberals did actually lose votes, albeit only like 1%, um, but they've, um, but the Premier is very popular. Um, and you can see a break point when the pandemic starts, when suddenly, when before the pandemic, he and the Labour leader were basically polling at equal popularity. And then the moment the pandemic started, they completely shifted apart from each other. He became incredibly popular and she became incredibly unpopular. And that's just kind of stayed the same ever since. Um, he He actually ended up winning half the first preference votes in his area, because this is a single transferable vote. So you vote for candidate, candidates, not, not parties. And, um, and uh, so he's, he, that's a kind of good demonstration of how popular he is now. Um, and yeah, Tasmanian Labour Party has had a fairly poor result. The, the Greens have kind of, uh, are looking a little bit better. Um, but um, broadly speaking, there's probably not a huge amount to draw from it, apart from coronavirus causes more popularity for incumbents, which we already knew. Um, as I said, there's one seat that looks like it might go to an independent. Funnily enough, we don't know which independent yet. There's one who basically um, is an ex-Labour MP who announced she was running as an independent and then, like, and registered and then towards the end of the campaign um the liberals basically said she's one of us now <laughs> um so uh, just treat her as like an extra liberal 
Um, and then there's a very popular local mayor in, in one of the seats uh, uh, that, uh, in the same cons constituency, and they're essentially fighting it out for each other. Um, she seems to be a little bit left-leaning. So it's kind of an interesting little battle there, but apart from that. <laughs> but yeah, fun little weird constitutional setup and election, but not really much to write home about. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure we're going to have much more um, electoral system conversations next week um, yes. when we tackle the UK, because as usual, we have a, a profusion of them to, that are going on. At the same time. Super Thursday, we're in the aftermath <laughs> of. <laughs> so yeah, please please do join us uh, join us next week while we'll be discussing um, the the local council elections in England, the metro mayors in England, the police and crime commissioners in England and Wales the Welsh Parliament, uh, the Scottish Parliament, and the Hartlepool uh, by-election. Anything yeah, else this I missed is... there, Chris? No, that, that all seems right. I, I think this might end up being multiple episodes. Quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> no, particularly because I think we'll probably want to really dig into what happened in, what's what the hell's happening in Scotland. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so, hold on for a bumper crock of UK election <laughs> discussions. <laughs> 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 okay. all right we'll see everyone next week then uh thanks for listening again and please do rate and subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast all right see everyone next time